I, I wanted to try to, to find a gift for you this morning, to preach a little gift for you before we go off to get our coffee, something that you would enjoy and that would uplift you. And uh, my wife suggested that we go with, we look at the traditional passage for this day, and that's uh, the story of Jesus going into Jerusalem on the back of an animal. So that's the passage that we're going to look at because this is sort of the traditional uh, day to remember it. We all know that Easter is next week, and that's the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection. But sometimes we overlook today, which was a special day, the anniversary of the day that Jesus went into Jerusalem on the back of an animal. I keep saying animal because last time I was here, I made a little joke about Jesus going into Jerusalem on the back of a mule. But I was only half joking. Because it, it has been a confusing thing through the years. It's, the reason it's confusing is because this is an important story that's found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in four Gospels, they say that he rode on three different animals. Once they say it's a donkey, then they say it's, a, it's like a young horse. And then the scripture that's quoted says that it's a donkey's colt. So, you know, scholars have tried to say, let's give these guys a break. You can't expect a tax collector to be able to identify a beast of burden. You know, maybe it was a donkey. He thought it was a colt. But then there are other people who say, well, the gospel writers were not that sloppy. And the Bible is true and right. And if the Bible says he rode on three animals, he did. So that means that he rode into Jerusalem three different times, once on each different animal. So you could be in that camp if you want to. But you know where I stand, that the only way to ride a donkey and a horse at the same time is to ride a mule. But because I wanted you guys to really feel sure in this, because it is a point of pride for this city, I looked up my old friend at Harding Graduate School, a bibliotechnician or a librarian, and he gave me a code that would allow me online access to a vault of articles, scholarly articles that are only accessible by me and all the other alumnus and uh, students and anybody that pays for a subscription. <laughs> And I did my search for uh, the use of domesticated mules in Palestine. And this is the quote that I came up with. It says, around 1050 BC in the time of King David, the mule replaced the donkey as the royal beast and became known as the riding animal of princes. And I think I can stand firmly there and rest my case that this was indeed a mule. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, and for our intents and purposes today, for our purposes today, we're going to, we're going to call it a mule. Uh, before I read from Mark chapter 11, let me give you just a little bit of background and context for the situation that Jesus is entering. Like I said, this is the beginning of his week in Jerusalem on Sunday. After he goes in on the mule on Sunday, uh, Monday through Wednesday is when he's going to like turn over tables. It's when he's going to really say some cheeky things to the Pharisees that are just going to make them angrier and angrier until they decide to kill him. Then on Thursday is when he's going to have the special Passover meal and the Last Supper and Judas goes out to betray him. Thursday night in the garden. Friday is his arrest and his crucifixion and death. He spends Saturday in the grave, and then Sunday, of course, rises from the dead. So that's what's coming. But here's what was before he rode in on the donkey. We read in John, 
that lots and lots of people were in Jerusalem for Passover. We were in Memphis. I worked at FedEx, the hub down there, and uh, a lot of people do the graveyard shift. I did. I worked from 10.30 to p.m. to 3.30 a.m. And they said that there at the airport at midnight, it became the 10th biggest city in Tennessee because everybody, you know, came to work. There were so many people working to get those packages out to the rest of the world. That sounds wrong. Somebody needs to Google that. Let's Google that, somebody. Anyway, it's kind of the same thing was happening in Jerusalem. It was, the population was swelling because so many people were there for Passover. Lots of people there. And John says that everyone was stirred up over Jesus' arrival because this was right after Jesus had gone to Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. So everyone knew about this. They'd heard about this Jesus. They were excited to receive him. This was the very height of Jesus' popularity, but it was also the height of the Pharisees' jealousy. And it was at the resurrection of Lazarus that they got together and said, we got to kill this guy. So there's your context as Jesus comes riding into town like a king on the back of a mule. I'm going to read Mark 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a mule tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we will bring it right back. They went, and sure enough, a mule was outside in the street, tied to a doorway. As they untied it, the people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that mule? They answered, Jesus told them to. They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the mule to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat upon it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, just like we sang. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So what happened next? I assume Jesus got off the mule and returned it to his owner. So what did you hear that stood out to you? If you were going to share some gifts, some nuggets from the scriptures with a congregation, what would, you, what would you find in those verses? I don't know. You haven't had much time to think about it, but I've been thinking for a week or so. I came up with lots, and I picked the three that maybe will be the most fun for you to hear, maybe the most interesting, maybe a little bit challenging. I don't know. I'm going to say three little observations that you can put in your pocket for the week, and if you don't like any of them, just skip it. And Randy will be back on Sunday next week. <laughs> so here's the first thing that I noticed. Somebody had to go and fetch that mule. It's like a detail that we don't think about. Because usually we look at this scripture and we skip the first part of the chapter. And we go down to Jesus entering and the cloaks going down. And the scriptural quotations and the things people are shouting. But in all four gospels, don't you think it's weird... In all four Gospels, they, they make sure to describe the plan that Jesus had, how he quarterbacked the retrieval of this animal for him to ride upon. And I just think, I wonder, which two apostles were given mule duty? 
Where was it? Was it one of the more popular ones? Peter, James, John, or was it one that's really rarely mentioned? It's like was it Bartholomew? Is he the one who had to go get the mule? It says that Jesus sent two. It was a two-man job. Uh, and there's a scripture quoted that, that, that makes us think that these guys knew what they were doing. It's from Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Don't be afraid, daughter, Jeru- daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seating, seated on a donkey's colt. And we can see that passage and think, Oh, they knew that this was a fulfillment of scripture when Jesus was riding in. But in John, it says that no, they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand that this was the fulfillment of Scripture until after Jesus died and was resurrected or glorified. So these two apostles, these two disciples, were told by Jesus, hey, go find a mule and bring it here. What do you think they were thinking? They're thinking, why why did Jesus pick us? Do we look like we're good with animals? They're thinking, I hope we don't get shot for mule theft. I hope the mule doesn't bite. Why does Jesus need a mule anyway? Why did he pick us? Why not pick Andrew or Simon? Like, I don't even like mules. This isn't life-giving. This doesn't spark joy, you know? Uh, A lot of us would like to receive a great assignment from God. A lot of us would love, you know, to... To, to be spoken to by God in a burning bush like Moses, saying, you know, go and free the people from slavery. Or we'd like to hear God the way Abraham did and say, go and move your family here and I'll make you a great nation. Those big assignments are great. And there's a reason that they're recorded in Scripture, because they're rare. You know, it's not every day that God needs to save his people from Egyptian bondage. It's not every day that he makes a nation out of one man's family. Usually we don't get the big assignments. Usually we're asked to go and untie the mule. Uh, A preacher that I heard recently said that Christians are kind of like uh, passengers who fly southwest. You know, southwest is different from other airlines because they have the open seating. You buy your ticket and you just better get in line fast because once you get on board, first come, first serve. He said Christians are kind of like people like, you know, they get in the aisle and they start praying, oh Lord, you know, don't make me sit in the middle seat. Like, maybe, Lord, it's too much to ask to get an aisle. I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to presume that I could get an exit row. But just don't put me by a guy with beefy elbows. Don't put me by a lady with a child on her lap. We want to do something for God, but it would be best if he could help us avoid the uncomfortable middle seat. Maybe we're kind of like an apostle or a disciple who says, Jesus, I would be happy to do anything except get the mule because these are, these are like my best khakis, you know, or Jesus, you know that I'm your guy. You know that I'm here for you every day, but if you could just send someone else to get the mule this time, or uh, Jesus, I'll fetch the next mule, I promise, or between you and me, Jesus, Andrew really likes mules, and he would really be ideal for this situation. Or maybe you just sit still and hope someone else will volunteer to get the mule. Maybe, maybe there is something that God's been asking you to do that maybe doesn't seem very important in the big scheme of things. Maybe it seems uh, a little bit below your pay grade or it's going to get your hands dirty. It's not the most comfortable, but you know 
that God would be pleased if you went ahead and did it. Well, maybe this is a good week for us to go ahead and do the things on our mule list. It won't hurt us. But like I said, if that's not you, skip it. Skip it. Here's the second thing that I noticed in this scripture that I thought I'd share with you. It's kind of obvious. And that is that Jesus is the king. He's the king. He's coming into Jerusalem and everyone's saying these great things. They're throwing the palm branches down under his mule and laying their coats down. And when they lay their coats down, it's not just like being chivalrous, like you see in old-timey picture shows, where the men will lay down their coats so that the woman can walk across the puddle without messing up her shoes. It wasn't chivalry, right? If this is him, these are people honoring him like a king and, and submitting to him like, like a king. And they shout all these honorific things to him. Jesus, we think about him in his ministry. We think about him taking the role of rabbi. We think about him taking the role of teacher, um, him being revered for his wisdom or his power to do miracles or how he answers questions with authority. But it's not until this day that he really starts to take on the persona of the king. There were whispers that he was the Messiah, which means the anointed one or the king. But he didn't really go around saying, hey, I'm the king, I'm the king until this week. But I'm really glad that he did because I like to think about God as the king or Jesus as the king. And maybe you don't because sometimes kings can be scary. Maybe when you think about God as the king, it makes you feel really small. Maybe, maybe you think about God as king and you think, well, his throne is so great and so high and so holy that I can't even look up from the ground. You know, you think of God as king and it makes you feel like a worm that needs to be on the ground. You know, maybe that's not that fun of a thought. Or maybe you think of, of God as the king and you think, well, the people are supposed to obey their king. They're supposed to do what the king says. And then you feel a little guilty because, ooh, maybe I haven't really been a good subject of the king. So maybe the king isn't that fun of a thing to think about. But I want to give you a different idea. Look at what the people were saying when Jesus came walking into town. They said what we just sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, right, which is a word that we use for worship, but really it's a way to honor a king by saying, save us. It means, oh, save. It means help us, protect us, be strong when we're weak. Let us stand behind you when we're weak and let you be our strength for us. So the good thing about having a king is that he's really strong and he has lots of resources. And you can think of the king as the one who's gonna take up for you when the enemy comes. The king who's going to provide food for you when your harvest is short, right? The king is someone who's powerful, who loves his subjects and takes care of them. So we can think about Jesus in that kind of kingly way as a God who's going to take care and come through and be our strength when we're weak. Now, I need to remember that because sometimes I get other ideas of a king. But our Lao friends, they do not need help remembering that. They know that they're citizens of a different kingdom. They know that they're protected by a God who is a king and is more powerful than their government. When the government said to Lao Christians, you can't preach, you can't teach, you can't share your faith, you can't baptize, you can't evangelize, otherwise you'll go to jail, some of our Lao Christian friends said, called Hulot, head bed knee, will die, which Chris knows means stick it up your nose, basically. We're going to do it anyway. Uh, one of my Lao friends, or our, our Lao friends, a brother, 
His name is uh, Hong, and he's got a wonderful wife, Ampone. And uh, I've told you before that for the last 20 years or so, there's been a lot of persecution of Christians, Lao Christians, in Vientiane, where we lived. Uh, Hong and Ampone wanted to be brave. They wanted to do something that was going to allow them to reach people, uh, but not rock the boat too much, not attract negative attention from the government, and not get the church in trouble. But they, they, they wanted to do something. And so they decided that they were going to open up their home to, to uh, girls from families in the countryside, families that were not believing families, who couldn't support their children and send their children to school. So they decided to do that, and they added three girls to their house. And that went well, so they added three more. And word got out, so they started finding girls on their porch that people were bringing. So now they had seven girls in their home. And they said, well, the government can't stop us from teaching them the Bible in our house. So they start teaching them and discipling these young girls and sending them to school. On Fridays, they would come to our house for a Bible study. And really, maybe they came for the snacks or the crafts, and their mother just made them study the Bible. But they would do that faithfully, and they were really good at it. Well, usually it's just the girls. But on one Friday, Hong appeared with them, and he was carrying their one-year-old son, Nathan. I sat down with Hong on the tile, and we were just talking, and I could tell that something was really wrong with Hong. His face was like shaking when he talked. You've seen him do that, Chris. His, cheek, like, was, his cheeks were trembling as he's talking and saying that the police had found him out. And he hadn't even had time to talk to his wife, Ampone, about it. He was just finding out, but he was just shaking and looking down at his little son who's sleeping on his knees, saying, I may not see him again. They said I'm going to go to jail, saying that you and Chris are going to have to stay in Laos and take care of my family, because without me, no one's going to take care of them. So, you know, what would you say? I didn't know what to say either. So, but I knew we needed to pray, and we prayed and encouraged. And, and fortunately, that happened on a Friday, which is your Thursday. So there was plenty of time to tell you guys and get you praying about it. And I know that you prayed for Hong and his family, and, and lots of our supporting churches did too. Well, on Friday, Hong was shaken like a leaf. He was scared. Prisons in Laos are places that you don't want to go. On Saturday, he showed up at our house with an arm load of Bibles, and he was getting all of his Christian material out of his house so that when the police came, he could hide his faith. I encouraged him to read Daniel chapter 3, especially uh, verse 16. So this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? The three guys who got put into the fiery furnace. Verse 16 is when they're standing before the king and they face him and say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from your majesty's hand. But... Even if he does not deliver us, stick it up your nose, right? We're, we're not, we're not going to quit. Well, you should have seen the change in Hong on Monday. On Friday, he's shaken. Saturday, he's hiding all of his Christianity. By Monday, he wants his Bibles back. He's no longer afraid. He's ready to stand strong and to face whatever is thrown at him. And God heard prayers and delivered him. Now their ministry is going so well, the police have left him alone, and all but one of those girls has been baptized into Christ. So 
You don't have to remind our loud friends that God is the king and he's stronger than any other power. And God is the one who has our back, so to say. So maybe that is what you needed to hear today. I don't know, maybe not. If not, skip it. There's one more shot I have at saying something that will encourage you. And this will be the last thing before we go get that coffee. The last thing I noticed in this passage was that Jesus the king was riding to his death. And that stood out to me. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't, uh, like, turn the mule around? Why did he go in on Monday and, and say the things that he did to the Pharisees, knowing he was going to make them mad? Why did he turn over tables in the temple? That had to attract some attention. Why, when he was put on trial, why didn't he deny it? Why didn't he say, you're right, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the king? No, he confessed, knowing what was going to happen, right? We sing that song like he could have called 10,000 angels to, you know, whisk him away from the cross. And I, I guess that is true. He could have gotten to Calvary and been like, abort, abort, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but he could have quit a lot sooner than that. I mean, this is all he would have had to do. Whoa. Bye, y'all. You know, that's all it takes. And he could be out of the whole thing. Why did he do it? Why did he ride that, dirty, that dusty road knowing that there was a painful cross at the other end? Well, he did it because of his great love for us, right? Have you ever thought about, like, why, why did there have to be a cross? You know, why, why couldn't God have come up with a scheme that would have been less painful or, 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 or less torturous for Jesus, right? Why did, why did the Son of God have to die? I think back to like, uh, you remember when those snakes got loose in Israel? They were biting everybody. Everybody's getting bit and poisoned and hurt. They had like tooth holes that were hurting. Many people perished. Maybe you don't remember. It's in there. And, and, and Moses went to God and said, all the people have been bit by snakes and we're real sorry. And God said, okay, Moses, make a bronze snake, you remember now, and put it on a stick. And then you, you walk around with the stick on a snake. You walk around with a snake on a stick. And anybody who has this, this, the bite marks, you, they can just look at the snake and, and it'll all be healed, like Neosporin, right? So why didn't they do something like that? We know that y'all have sinned, and that was very bad, but it's going to be okay. We'll save you. All you have to do is look at the snake on the stick. Wouldn't that have been a lot easier? Right? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons why they made this plan the way they did, but there might be a clue for us in Ephesians 2. I was looking over there earlier this week when I was in a very good Bible class. In Ephesians chapter 2, we might get an idea why Jesus went to the cross. It says, uh, as for us, as for us, Paul says, we were dead in our sins and transgressions in which we used to live when we followed the, the ways of this world. 
All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like all the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But Christ died because of his great love for us. He rode the mule. He received the abuse. He bore the whip. He dragged the cross up the hill because of his great love for us. It says that uh, in verse 7 that Jesus died in order that he might display for all times the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in the kindness of Christ Jesus. That's hard to make heads and tails of. That's a very confusing sentence. But there's a word in there that kind of helps us. In your Bibles, it might say incomparable riches. In my Bible, it says surpassing riches of his grace. That Jesus died so that God could show forever the surpassing riches of his grace and love toward us. That's a, still a long and hairy sentence. That word, surpassing or incomparable, comes from a word called hooperbalo in the Greek. Hooperbalo, it's a compound word. The second part of the word is balo, which is like ball. So that's an easy one to remember. It's like, because balo means to throw. We like to throw a balo. And the first part of the word might be kind of easy for you too if you're a linguist. Hooper, which sounds like hyper which means a lot, right? Or maybe like Uber, as our German friends would say. Um, Hooper. So you could guess that Hooper means way more than is needed. Hooper means a whole, whole lot. Hooper means like overkill. And I, I actually married into a family with the last name Hooper. And I can tell you that those things don't apply to them <laughs> at all, dear. But when you put the word hooper and ballo together, you, it means like to throw way, way beyond what was needed, to shoot way past the target, okay? And that's the word that's used to describe the act of the cross. It was Jesus going way, way beyond what was needed. Maybe we just needed 10 units of grace, but God gave us a million. Maybe we just needed him to carry us a mile, and he carried us all the way to the moon and back. Maybe we needed a cup full of love and he gave us a whole ocean. So Jesus rode that donkey all, or that mule all the way down that road to the cross because long ago, he and God got together and said, what can we do? What can we do to show them how much we love them? What can we do to make sure they know how much grace is available to them? How far we'll go to forgive them, and they came up with the cross. So the third thing I thought of was that Jesus, he walked down, he rode down that road on the mule, knowing what was coming because of his really, really great love for us. I hope that some of that stuck on you today and helps you as you spend a week kind of meditating on, thinking about the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Uh, we're going to sing a song here in a minute, and then go enjoy coffee, and we're going to actually come back and get to talk about Laos, and I'm going to probably say thank you a lot more times for all the things you've done. Mr. John's going to lead us a song, and I think Mr. Carey's going to come up. So if you have anything that you need, please let Mr. Carey know.
If you'd like a special prayer, please ask him to pray it for you. And if you decided that you'd like to give your life to Jesus, he'd love to hear about that too while we stand.